Welcome to All Sides with Anna Staver. When we think of adoption, we often think of the adoptive parents, the family of means who long for a child. And when we think of birth mothers, if we think of them at all, we picture unsupported, underprepared young women searching for someone to raise their baby. The adoption is the win-win, the unmitigated social good. But a new book called Relinquished challenges that narrative through interviews with a hundred birth mothers taken over a decade. Their stories are difficult to read, painting a picture of women with little money or power who suffer through the complicated and even traumatic consequences of relinquishing an infant. The book comes out today, February 27th, and sociologist and author Gretchen Sisson joins us now to talk about Relinquished, the politics of adoption and the privilege of American motherhood. Welcome to All Sides, Gretchen. Thank you, Anna. I want to begin with a quote from your book. And it says, Americans of all religions and political parties believe adoption to be fundamentally, fundamentally necessary and social good. They see adoption as a way of ensuring better lives for children who might not otherwise have homes or parents at all. These beliefs are rarely rooted in reality. What is incorrect with the cultural narrative around adoption? Yeah, so we have this idea that adoption is necessary to keep children safe, that there are a lot of unwanted children out there, um, and that these homes that children are being relinquished from are fundamentally unsuitable or unsafe for them. Um, And what I found is that so many of the mothers I interviewed really wanted to parent their children. Um, That was why they continued their pregnancies. That was why they um, were were trying to find a way to parent and make it work throughout their their pregnancies. And and at some point, most of them faced a crisis that made that feel impossible. Um, And that was when they ended up turning to adoption. Adoption became a lifeline. Um, And many of them were already raising children. Um, they were already parenting. Um, many of them would go on to have children soon thereafter the adoption. So it's not that these women were fundamentally incapable as mothers, that their homes were deeply unsuitable in any way. Um, it's just that they faced challenges within that window of that, that the end, really the end of the pregnancy that kind of pushed them towards adoption. Yeah, one of the surveys that you cite in the book says that 80% would have parented if they had more financial resources. And we're not talking about tens of thousands of dollars here. In one case, you were talking about a reliable car and a car seat. Yeah, and I think that that is one misconception that that people have is that they need a, a, a ton of money, right? That they're looking for the level of support that it would take to raise a child until age 18. Um, and I've gotten some pushback from people saying like, is $1,000 really enough? One of the women said she needed $1,000 to be raising her child. Um, and the question is, well, how far does $1,000 really go when you're raising a kid? Look, I, I have three kids. I am aware <laughs> that it doesn't really get you that far, but it can get you through that immediate moment that they're facing, right? It can be a security deposit on a new apartment. It can be a crib and a car seat to make you feel like your home is ready to bring a child home to. Um, It could be the difference between 
um, you know, being able to to get through that maternity leave, those first few weeks after birth before you can get a new job that makes it feel feasible. Um, and so really, I always, I always say, these mothers aren't looking for a way to get from A to Z, right? They're looking for a way to get from A to B, and then they're going to figure out C and D and E one step at a time, but they can't even get that first step that makes parenting feel possible for them. Yeah, there was this one line that I will admit I had to put the book down and walk away after I read it. And it was when I asked mothers if they regretted their adoptions, many of them said they did unequivocally. I think regret is a really complicated idea for a lot of mothers because they want to have a lot of grace for their past selves and recognize the circumstances under which the adoption occurred. Um Many of them did say that they regretted, but even those who couldn't say that, didn't feel like that was the right word, had really complicated feelings. Um, so there's one story that I talk about in the book. Um, I, you know, I, I asked this mother if she regretted the adoption and she said, it's hard for me to say I regret the adoption because the life I have now, the spouse I have now, the child I have now feels mutually exclusive from having parented my first daughter, right? And and by asking her if she regretted this, if she would have done something different, she, she didn't want to give away the relationships in the family that she had at that moment. But she did say, I wish there was a way to have all of my children with me, right? And so regret kind of offers this counterfactual path that a lot of mothers couldn't couldn't move toward really in a way. They, they couldn't quite go that far. Um, but they still wished that something different had happened in the course of that decision. You interviewed about 100 women, and you interviewed them sometimes a year out, 10 years out, 20 years out from their adoptions. And you refer to them very often by first name only, and they're often fake names given to protect the identities of their children. And I want to talk about some of those women. Um, There's a woman you call Paige. She was a young white woman from the Midwest who relinquished a daughter that you call Abby after her first year of college. Can you give us the broad brushstrokes of Paige's story? So Paige was sexually assaulted. Her daughter was conceived in sexual assault. And I interviewed Paige in both 2010 and 2020. And I think that what's interesting is how she thought about the adoption change but how she thought about even the circumstances of conception changed, right? So when I interviewed her in 2010, and I think her daughter, her, her daughter was not that young. Um, I have a lot of mothers whose stories I'm trying to hold, but it, it wasn't that she was talking about an assault that had happened, you know, just within the past year. This had been a couple of years. And the way that she talked about it was, um, I don't really know what happened. I don't really remember what happened. And she didn't name it as assault. She didn't name it as rape. She, but she had this confusion over what had happened that night when she was a student at college that led to her becoming pregnant. Um, whereas when I talked to her again in 2020, she was clear that this had been an assault. And that was the first time that she used the word rape. Um, and I think that it shows the ways that as she became further out from that trauma, she had more clarity in understanding what had happened to her. And that is actually true with regard to the adoption as well. 
that when I interviewed her, when the adoption was more recent, she had these sort of ambiguous feelings around it. She wasn't quite sure. Maybe it was best for her daughter. She was still struggling with it. And when I talked to her again, 10 years later, um, she was very clear that, that this that this adoption was a continuation of the trauma that had come from the circumstances under which her daughter was conceived. Um, and it's interesting you, message Paige, you mentioned Paige. I actually just got a message from her yesterday. Um, and, and I think that even in the four years, three and a half years since I last interviewed her, she's come to an even more critical place and mentioning sort of the adoption as this perpetual limbo that both she and her daughter are in. Um, because a lot of what drove her adoption was her Catholic upbringing. And so she's really drawing on this sense of limbo of, of being forced to kind of watch her daughter from afar and not have the relationship that she wants to with her. Um, so I, I was really glad to get to include her story in the book. Yeah. When you first interview her, she's both Catholic and anti-abortion. And now she's neither. Yes. Um, a lot of, this is a misconception, actually, that a lot of mothers relinquish their babies because they're anti-abortion. That's why they didn't get an abortion in the first place. That is true for some of them, um, that anti-abortion beliefs are what led them to continue the pregnancy in the first place. Um, but again, even most of those mothers weren't proactively choosing adoption. They were choosing to continue the pregnancy because they hoped to parent. Um, even under really complicated circumstances. A lot of them become alienated from, from church. Um, for Paige, it was her Catholicism. For a lot of mothers, it was evangelicalism or Mormonism, um, kind of whatever conservative religious ideologies they felt had framed adoption as the preferred path at the time. Um, and a several mothers who hadn't been anti-abortion at the time of their pregnancy became involved in the anti-abortion movement after the adoption um, because the anti-abortion movement does this really great job of putting birth mothers on a pedestal, right? And telling them they're heroic um, for, for quote, you know, choosing life, that this is what, um, this is the preferred option. Most of them be then become alienated from the uh, anti-abortion movement over time because that pedestal doesn't have any support underneath it, right? It doesn't actually honor their experiences. It doesn't make space for the complexity of their feelings about the adoptions over time. Um, so a lot of the mothers had really complicated feelings about, about abortion, about their involvement with the anti-abortion movement at different points, um, and about their own religious identities. They were kind of all tangled up together for a long time. Do you think it's because... Um... I got the impression from reading the book that a lot of the women felt like they were sold a false narrative about adoption, particularly from their religions. Uh, there's one religious adoption agency that where you quote in the book where the counselor tells the pregnant uh, mom, I've never met a woman who regretted her adoption. And it, it seems like they didn't or they weren't prepared for how they were going to feel afterwards. Is that a fair assessment? I think that's absolutely true. And I think that it wasn't just the grief that they were unprepared for. Um, but a lot of these mothers were in adoptions that were open to some degree. They had ongoing contact with their child and their child's adoptive family. That's a complicated relationship, 
right? Even though it's common within the practice of adoption, it remains kind of a novelty in the world at large. Um, and that's a relationship that needs a lot of support, a lot of negotiation, a lot of recentering of the child, of what the child needs at different points in their in their upbringing and in their life. Um, and a lot of mothers were told they were going to have an open adoption. This is going to be great. They're going to get to be in contact. They're going to get to watch their kid grow up, but then had no support for managing those relationships, um, for communicating with their child's adoptive parents. Um, so a lot of them felt misled in that way. Um, a lot of them also felt that the circumstances under which they had made a decision around adoption changed really quickly. So especially for the mothers who came from more conservative upbringings, right? They had this strong animating belief that their child needed to be in a two-parent family with two married parents. Um, and that they, as prospective single mothers, couldn't deliver that for their child at that point. Um, and one mother that I interviewed relinquished her daughter because she wanted her daughter to have two married parents. Um, and within four years, the adoptive parents are divorced and she herself is married um, and raising a child with her new husband. Um, and, and it just, I think that, that that single variable had been so important, had been really the crux of what she was trying to accomplish for her child when it came to the adoption. And, and to then see that that was something that she could now offer in her home and the adoptive parents couldn't um, was, was really jarring for her. Um, and again, I'm not saying that adoptive parents should stay in unhappy marriages because birth mothers are promised this sort of false bill of goods, of course. Um, but just that all of these conditions are subject to change as the child grows older. And so it's hard for mothers to feel like what they are assured of at the time of the adoption will actually be what life looks like for them and their child. We also want to hear from you this hour. Did you relinquish a child? Are you an adoptee? Are you looking to adopt? What do you want people to know about the process? You can give us a call at 614-292-8513 or email allsides at wosu.org. About 19,000-ish women relinquish babies in the United States each year. And to put that in perspective, you write that there's about 4 million babies born and about a million abortions. So there's a very small percentage of women who relinquish. And I want to talk about some of the statistics about who they are, because one of the things that surprised me was the majority, 56 percent, are in their 20s. These are not teenage pregnancies for the most part. Right. And I think that is really broadly reflective of overall pregnancy and birth rates. It's also reflective of um who gets abortions most frequently, like women in their 20s are just most likely to be pregnant, <laughs> kind of regardless of outcome. Um, but I do think that when it comes to the context of adoption, it represents a shift. Um, because we look back at adoption pre-Roe, um, and then certainly through the 80s and, and into the early 90s, um, adoption was a way of delaying motherhood for a lot of these women. These are really girls and young women that were um, especially in the context of pre-road, that were pushed by their own parents towards adoption and towards relinquishing. And these were kind of the maternity homes where girls were sent away um, to deliver at maternity homes in secret. And they were told like, well, now you're going to just move on with your life and you can have a baby later when you're married or in more appropriate circumstances. Um, 
that idea of adoption as a way to delay parenting doesn't bear out as much in stories today because most birth mothers are already raising children. Um, and so they do, they that are also surprised they me less that they were mothers. Yeah. Ah, that's so, yeah. it's not what you think well, when I you think, picture it. Yeah. Because I think because we have this idea that, and, and again, until 15, 20 years ago, that was probably an accurate idea that these were younger women and that this was a way of delaying parenthood for them. Um, but more and more adoption is not about delaying parenthood until you can, you know, be in a more appropriate social context for that role. It is about poverty and it's a reflection of which, how many children you feel you can care for. Um, and I think that when we look at the demographics of birth mothers, most of them have less than $5,000 of annual personal income. Um, they might be have higher household incomes, right? They might have a partner who's bringing in more income. They might be reliant on their own parents for the women who are younger. Um, but for the most part, they don't have control over their own financial resources, or they just don't have access to any financial resources at all. And so now the powerlessness that kind of underlies relinquishment is less about youth and is more about financial um, setbacks. That was Gretchen Sisson, the author of Relinquished, The Politics of Adoption and the Privilege of American Motherhood. Coming up, we're talking about the politics of adoptions and its role in American history. That's when All Sides continues on 89.7 NPR News. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to All Sides. I'm your host, Anna Staver. We're talking this hour about adoption, specifically about birth mothers, whose journeys and stories are often untold or a little told part of the adoption story. Still with us is Gretchen Sisson, the author of Relinquished, The Politics of Adoption and the Privilege of American Motherhood. And we also want to hear from you this hour. Are you an adoptee? Are a birth mother? Are you planning to adopt? Give us a call at 614 292-8513. And now I want to dive into a part of your book where you go through the American history of placing a child for adoption. And you describe it up until very recently, actually, as an obligation, not a choice for poor single women. And sometimes it was even outright theft from enslaved Black women whose children were sold uh, to Native American families whose children were taken in an effort designed to, quote, kill the Indian, save the man. So I think it's safe to say that America has a complicated at best history when it comes to adoption. And can you tell us about Georgia Tan? 
Yes, and I, I think that a lot of these stories are not just reflections of kind of the legal roots of private adoption today, but a broader reflection of how Americans have always valued parental bonds, family separation, family preservation, and who gets a right to their own children. And so I think that that's, that's really important to examine the ways that you know, our current practices are really haunted by these dark moments in American history. But within that context, Georgia Tan is a, a particular villain. Um, and it's, I, as someone who loves studying history, I always think that it's overly simplistic to kind of point at one person and be like, this one is the bad guy. But you kind of can in this case. <laughs> um, Georgia Tan was a social worker at the Tennessee Children's Home. Um, and she stole children. She just straight up stole, stole children. She would, um, you know, be at the deliveries of babies, and when their mothers were unconscious, would um, would take babies and then tell them their children had died. Um, she would take children from doctors' offices. Um, she would take children of poor families and tell them that they were, you know, going to go have a meal or, or you know spend the night somewhere safe and we'll be back. And then obviously they, they were never back. Um, and she just seemed to have this idea that um, she knew better where children should be, where they should go and had no qualms about quite literally kidnapping children. Um, but because there wasn't a really rigorously legally defined practice of adoption at the time, she got to step in and fill a lot of that void. Um, and so a lot of the policies that we have today about, um, you know, releasing um, birth certificates for adopted people that list their adoptive parents uh, as having given birth to them um, and then sealing their original birth certificates, keeping that identity from them. A lot of adopted people in the United States still don't have access to their original birth certificates. Um, that was a practice that Tan developed. Um, she was also very strategic and savvy, and she facilitated adoptions for a lot of powerful people, um, a lot of people in Hollywood, the governor of New York, a lot of other policymakers. She, she formed close relationships with them uh, and then facilitated their adoptions so that they would promote her and her work and give her a lot of cover um, for what she was doing. Um, there's a really excellent book um, by Barbara Bazance Raymond called The Baby Thief that explores Georgia's history in, in a lot of depth um, and looks at how it's shaped adoption today. Um, but I think that adoption has, has never received a ton of scrutiny from our policymakers. It still doesn't today. It didn't then, which is how really one person um, could get away with so much that has had such a lasting impact. I want to take a call from Max in Columbus. He is an adopted kid himself. Welcome to All Sides. Hi, Anna. Thanks for having me. Go ahead, Max. Yeah, so I'm an adopted child from birth. Um, I made contact with my birth mother around the time I was in high school, and we had correspondence for quite a while through email. I was never really comfortable meeting up in person, but... Uh, I was able to receive a package of letters, notes, cards, birthday cards she had written me um, from the time of birth up to when we had first made correspondence. So it sounds like you had a closed adoption. That is correct. 
what um and it's totally up to you what were in the cards like what what was your takeaway from maybe why she gave you up um it was a very difficult situation that had to do with uh um an affair out of her marriage but um you could tell how heartbroken she was and how much love that was there for me and she knew um my life would have been much better and safer having put me up for adoption and i'm grateful every day that she made that choice thank you so much max thank you it's so complicated i mean i think every adoption is probably complicated um, I want to talk a little bit, though, about transracial adoptions, because they weren't the norm up until the last, it sounds like 30-ish years, but you can correct me if I'm wrong. But they, you know, you write about them and, like, the additional complications that they have, particularly when it comes to perhaps not appreciating the challenges, particularly when the mother, the birth mother is white and the birth father is black, yeah, and the the history of transracial adoption in the United States is is interesting, and this goes. This is part of the reason why, up until thirty years ago, the really probably twenty years ago, um, the private adoption system was overwhelmingly white. So the vast majority of mothers who are participating in the private adoption system um, were themselves white, and they were having white children for the most part. Um, but the increasing participation of women of color in the private adoption system today um, is a reflection of this shift um, to sort of poverty being the unifying driving force behind relinquishment. Um, but it's also a reflection of the fact that white families now are willing to adopt children of color. Whereas if you look back in the 70s and early 80s, they really weren't. Um, part of that shift um, was the rise of international adoption that happened during the 90s into the early 2000s um, and then dropped pretty precipitously um, soon thereafter. And while most white prospective adoptive parents weren't interested in adopting Black children at the time, they were interested or they could be persuaded to adopt children from Latin America, children from, from China, from Korea. Um, those were a lot of... Um, countries that were exporting their children at the time. And, um, and so you saw this sort of increasing acceptance of transracial adoption that came out of transnational adoption. Um, now that international adoption has dropped off, you are seeing that white prospective adoptive parents are increasingly willing to adopt any healthy baby. Um, and that is regardless of race. Um, a lot of the mothers that I interviewed I mean, most of the mothers that I interviewed were white, again, because this is a reflection of who was participating in the system, you know, 14 years ago when I began. Um, but many of the white mothers who were relinquishing Black children were not thinking about the fact that their child was likely to be a transracial adoptee. Um, and so they weren't putting a lot of thought into their child's racial and ethnic identity as they were selecting adoptive parents. Um, which meant that you had biracial children in white homes. Um, they were unlikely to have relationships with their birth father's family. So even though they had a connection to their family of origin, um, it was still a white family. 
Right. And, and I think that, and I'm always very clear, I don't study adoptee experiences. Um, I do rely on a lot of um, accounts and scholarship of adopted people in the book. I want the book to feel accountable to them in their experiences, but th that's not part of what I have explicitly studied. Um, but drawing on the accounts of transracial adoptees, there is a specific complication that comes from being isolated, um, particularly in, in pretty homogeneously white communities um, as a biracial child or as a transracial adoptee that I think is really important. But I also want to be clear, the, the mothers that I interviewed who were women of color um, were very aware of who they were choosing for their child's adoptive parents at the time. Um, there was one mother who was black um, and she said, well, I'm, I'm only going to relinquish my son if we can find black adoptive parents. The agency couldn't find black adoptive parents. Um, the crisis that she was going through at the time continued. She couldn't find another way of kind of getting through this. And so finally she chose white adoptive parents that had already adopted a black baby so that at least he wouldn't be the only black child in that family. Um, there was one woman I interviewed. She herself was a transnational adoptee from Central America um, who grew up in a white family. Um, and she was very clear that being a, a transracial adoptee had been really hard on her. Um, and so when she was pregnant and looking at relinquishing, she just knew she did not want to have that. She wanted to choose people of color for her child's adoptive parents. Um, but she couldn't find Latina parents that would adopt her. So she, she placed her daughter with an uh, Asian American family, right? And so you have these sort of layered separations of ethnic identity, of racial background, um, where birth mothers are kind of continually having to make concessions about what they want for their child um, with regard to those identities. I want to talk about the adoption industry or the agencies doing these adoptions. Um, and I want to start with uh, Cassie. She's a 22-year-old college student that you interviewed. And she says that the agency didn't talk to her about any other options. It was all adoption all the time. And she had this really telling quote. And she says, sometimes I feel like the adoption was my fault because I reached out to them. Sometimes you just want to like reach to the phone and give some of these women a hug. And I don't mean that in a patronizing way, but I just mean it that the- Your the heart goes out to them. Yeah, the amount that they're carrying is is a lot. Um, and Cassie in particular, um, Cassie found out she was pregnant very late in her pregnancy. Um, and I think if she had found out that she was pregnant earlier in her pregnancy, she she would have had an abortion. But she was, she was past the point in her pregnancy where she felt comfortable doing that. Um, and she's the mother who says, like, if I had just had a thousand more dollars, my life would have changed. Um, and, but she didn't, she didn't have a thousand dollars and she didn't know what to do. And her parents were not supportive. Um, her boyfriend was emotionally supportive, was there for her, was an engaged partner, but couldn't supply additional resources for her. Um, and so she went to the adoption agency cause she wasn't sure what else to do. 
Um, and they had her do this exercise that actually I heard a lot from like mothers who relinquished pre-row where they write a list and they say, let's list all the things an adoptive family can offer your baby, right? They can offer them a home, two married parents, you know, safe, a safer community, better schools, greater stability. Um, and, and then on the other side, like, what can you offer? All you can offer your baby is love, right? And that's not enough. And, and she, they never talked to her about what parenting might look like, what that support might, that she might need would be, where it might come from. Um, but it was immediately like, you are a hero for being here. You love your child so much that you're willing to make this decision. Um, and when she started looking at adoptive parent profiles, um, the couple she chose was really wealthy and they had this glamorous lifestyle and um, the father was a TV host and the mother was a fashion designer, right? And and she becomes really enamored of them really quickly, right? She's working a $9 an hour job, right? She's trying to figure out how to make ends meet. And here's this glamorous couple um, that wants her baby. Um, and I think we forget that the demand for adoption is very, very high, right? There are an estimated between eight and 45 prospective parents for every baby that's relinquished. Demand is very high. Supply of babies is really low. And I'm intentionally using like market terminology here. Um, and I've done that like, throughout this conversation. I talk about countries exporting their children, right? Because I think it's important to understand the ways in which this is a market. And so when you have for-profit agencies, they're going to be highly motivated to target vulnerable pregnant people to sell them on the idea of adoption. And even when you have nonprofit agencies, um, I cite some research by Catherine Mariner who did an ethnography at a nonprofit adoption agency, which said, yeah, they're nonprofit, but they will cease to exist if they're not facilitating a minimum number of adoptions per year. Um, and so I think that we need to remember the ways that agencies are really driven both out of a belief that what they're doing is a sincere and genuine social good and out of the, the fact that their entire work is premised on actually making these adoptions legally complete. And one of the things you talked about that there were so many times in this book, I have to say, that I had to put it down uh, and just walk away for a moment. But you talk about how adoption agencies buy ads for Google search terms like how to be a single parent, help for single moms, or they will even, um, I think you called it geofencing around abortion clinics, around pregnancy crisis centers. Like they're, they're trying to advertise not to women who are searching for adoption, but to women who might be poor and vulnerable, essentially. Right. And and not just uh, abortion clinics, methadone treatment centers, public hospitals, WIC sites, um, they'll buy search terms that don't have anything to do with adoption, right? Like how to enroll on WIC in Ohio, right? And, and you'll start getting ads for adoption agencies. And those are really you know, as I mentioned, in Cassie's case, those are really compelling for a lot of mothers um, who are are struggling. They're at a point where they really are struggling. Um, and I think that looking at how that advertising and that outreach is so laser focused on, on targeting them is important. 
Yeah. In Cassie's case, she wrote in her narrative that no one ever said to her, you can do this. Here's how you could do it. Here's how you could parent if that was something you chose to do. Right. And I think that when you look at all of the requirements around counseling, when it comes to ending a pregnancy, when it comes to having an abortion, the uh, the number of laws around requiring options counseling and waiting periods and um you know scripted medical scripts excuse me <coughs> that clinics are required um to communicate with women who are seeking care um we don't see a corresponding requirement when it comes to adoption You're listening to All Sides. Coming up, we're talking about adoption in popular culture and how we can have more honest conversations about what it entails. That's when All Sides continues on 89.7 NPR News. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to All Sides. I'm your host, Anna Staber. We're talking this hour about adoption, specifically about birth mothers and the challenges they face when they relinquish a child. Still with us is Gretchen Sisson, a qualitative sociologist and author of Relinquished, The Politics of Adoption and the Privilege of American Motherhood. You write that helping birth mothers would take a sustained effort, and I want to talk about some of the ways that we could do that, starting with ways to make the process of adoption better. Uh, only seven states, you write in the book, require counseling for birth mothers before they relinquish, and just 13 require that they get an explanation of the legal effects of relinquishment. Safe to say that needs to change first, right? Um, I think so. I think that there there should be a greater degree of informed consent around these. Um, there's also some federal legislation around changing, um, limiting the marketing for unlicensed adoption facilitators. Um, we just passed a similar policy here in California statewide. Um, similar, many states have similar bans, um, but it's really hard to regulate how things are marketed on the internet across state lines, of course. And so um, a federal ban would be really helpful in sort of reducing some of that targeting that we were talking about earlier. Yeah. In preparing for this episode, I found out that Germany and other European countries don't permit marketing from adoption agencies. And they also have very different rules about revocation, which is this right of a birth mother to change her mind after she's signed the paperwork. Because birth mothers in America often sign their rights away within hours of delivering. And as a woman who's given birth, that feels way too soon. I feel like you're probably still like getting stitched up and medicated when you're making this life-altering decision. And 
you know, most European countries I found have a two month revocation period and Spain in particular won't allow you to revoke parental rights for the first 30 days. I guess like, I don't know, does it strike you as odd that you're like you have the baby and then an hour later you're signing the papers? Um. I mean, yes, yes, this is a short answer. It does strike me as something that we should not be doing. Um, I mean, the argument for these kind of really early termination policies and, and short revocation periods is that um, they they allow children to get into permanent homes faster. Um, but I think that it is worth a little delay to make sure that the children are in the right home that they should be in. Um, and and I don't think that there is, unless a child is in an unsafe situation, um, if they're surrounded by people who love and care for them, who are still trying to figure things out, like they're they're going to be okay. Um, and I think that that is another misconception that we have is that children are going to be at risk and immediately traumatized if there's some sort of question early on about revocation. Um, but. I mean, I still, I, I think that the timeline on which American adoptions happen makes it so ripe for coercion. Um, so many mothers I spoke with were signing away custody while they were still on pain, like serious pain management drugs post labor and delivery. Um, you would not be able to sign any other contract in that sort of circumstance. Um, there were also mothers, and I, this is illegal, straight illegal. But um, mothers I spoke with who were or asked to sign their their termination of parental rights um, before delivery, which you cannot do. You can't terminate your parental rights to a child that hasn't been born yet. Um, but they're like, oh, we'll just date it after the baby is born because you're going to be induced tomorrow, for example. Um, again, that's illegal. But because we have this narrow window already, it allows for these more nefarious practices to exist at all. Yeah, you also talk about mothers who were essentially told they can't revoke or they would it would be breach of contract or they'd have to pay back any money they got maybe for housing. Like even if they they it almost sounds like they were misled about what their legal right was to revocation. Oh, absolutely. And I want to be clear, a lot of people are told that birth mothers get support from agencies during their pregnancies. Very few of the mothers that I interviewed had any experience with that. Um, a few of them did, particularly if they didn't have stable housing. Agencies would help them get housing. They'd help them get an Airbnb for a, a few months. Um, but in some cases, then after the baby was born, they were told, you um, you now need to pay us back for your housing. They're of course not in a position to do that, right? Oh, you're going to be sued for fraud if you do this. Um, there's, there's a really interesting organization called Saving Our Sisters, which is a coalition of um, birth mothers and, and adoptees and, and other allies that helps women who are in this position of wanting to revoke um, and, and helps them with the legal fight because these mothers can't afford attorneys, right? They can't, they can't, they're still in the same position that they were when they made this decision. Um, and so I think the fact that you have this, this kind of grassroots coalition of, of former birth mothers who feel traumatized by their adoptions, who really want to be able to swoop in and help mothers in this uh, in this really vulnerable spot, help, says a lot about how they're doing, how they were treated by the system. 
I want to turn our conversation to open adoptions because uh, that's one of the things that has changed in recent years, and arguably it's a good thing. Um, but open adoption is not a legal term, and what it means can run the gambit from annual photos of the baby at Christmas to family trips, babysitting, like becoming a part of ex- the extended family network. I mean, it's all over the place. Yeah, and there's not one legal definition of it either, right? So a lot of open adoption agreements are not legally enforceable. I think that that's important to understand, which a lot of the mothers that I interviewed didn't fully understand um, that this agreement that they were signing didn't have any legal teeth behind it. Um, but I also, so, so there, as you said, there's sort of what I would call semi-open adoption where they'll get periodic um, pictures that are sent through the agency. They might not know their child's last name. They might not know where their child lives, but they have this sort of moderated level of communication with their child's adoptive parents. Um, and then there were mothers who um, were going on family vacations with their child's adoptive family um, who are babysitting them. And and then there was everything in between, right? And, and some of these things are really predicated on how close people live and how how they're able to maintain that relationship. But as I said earlier, these relationships are hard and they're hard to make successful without support. Um, and what I think is really telling is um, one of the mothers, I, I believe I call her Megan in the book. Um, Megan was probably the happiest in her open adoption of any mothers that I spoke with. Um, and I always ask, well, you know, it's sort of a tell, like, how recently have you seen your child? Um, and she said, oh, I probably haven't seen her in a few days, maybe a week. But I saw her adoptive father um, because we were buying a TV at Best Buy and he has a bigger car than us. So he just came home. Like, it was this totally mundane sort of conversation, the same way that I might like call my brother-in-law to help with something, right? And it was it was just so clear that she was such a close part of their family. Um but she, what I think is really important is she said, our success in having this kind of relationship wasn't because of anything I was told during my pregnancy. It wasn't because of anything the agency did. We were just a really good match. We care for each other. We love each other. Her parents have never viewed me as a threat to their own adoptive family. Um, she mentioned this story one time when her daughter was, I think, 10 or 11, um, and she came up to Megan and was like, can I call you mom? And she's like, well, you should, you should ask your adoptive mother because I want to make sure. And she's like, but I knew her adoptive mother would just say like, yeah, call her mom if you want. Right. Like that there was always this recognition of Megan's role in her daughter's life. And I think the other thing that this highlights is the fact that we think of openness as a favor to birth parents, right? This is something that's going to help them. Um, the person who actually benefits the most from openness is the adopted person having that connection to their family of origin is most important for them in their growth and their development and their understanding of their adoption. A lot of mothers I interviewed found the openness really hard and painful because they wanted to have that close connection with their child. They didn't want to give it up, but those, those relationships were challenging to manage. One of the women I spoke with um, once a month on a Sunday, she'd spend the day with her son. Um, and she always had to take the next day off of work, right? because she would always go into this depression at having to say goodbye to him again and having to wait another month to see him um, at not knowing 
you know, not feeling like she had any control over this relationship. Those things, they're, they're less traumatic than being in a closed adoption for sure, but they are still very hard on a lot of the mothers. Yeah, that was one of the fascinating things about this book was that an open adoption is hard for the adoptive parents. It's hard for the birth parents. And in reality, it's for the benefit of the child, not any of the parents in that circumstance. And, you know, I wanted to also ask about counseling for birth mothers, because you talk about how we have this idea that part of the cost of the adoption is the services provided to the birth mother. And that's often not the case. And, you know, so many of the women that you interviewed talked about their depression, uh, suicidal thoughts. One of them, I think, was put on a suicide watch after she delivered. And, you know, Cassie, one of the women in the book, says, it was just the darkest and most depressed I've ever been. I knew I would be sad, but I didn't realize, I don't, I didn't think I realized the depth of the feeling. And I, I wonder, like, if we should, it's hard to say you should le- legislate or mandate counseling, but it kind of feels like these women need some kind of grief counseling, at least for the first couple of months. I mean, I don't think we should mandate counseling, but I think we could mandate making it available, right? A lot of them didn't have a place to go for support or counseling afterward. And what I think is, is like particularly uncomfortable is a lot of these mothers would be depressed. They would have these crises, um, you know, would be put on suicide watch, would turn to drugs or alcohol. And then these ways of processing their trauma would be used to be like, well, see, like you couldn't have been a good mom, right? (laughs) Whereas it's the trauma of the separation that's animating that grief that's then used to illustrate their unsuitability. Um, A lot of them faced that. Um, You know, but I think that we certainly need more support for birth parents. And and I will actually say, you know, for your listeners in Ohio, the Adoption Network in Cleveland um, is is probably one of the better organizations in the entire country offering support for for birth families um, and the Ohio birth parent group. Um, So there's organizations do exist, but a lot of times birth mothers don't know where to find them um, or they can't pay for services. Um, and so I think that we need to understand that the cost of adoption right now does not include these post-adoption support services for families um, in a way that would make a meaningful impact in their life. That was Gretchen Sisson, a sociologist and the author of Relinquished, The Politics of Adoption and the Privilege of American Motherhood. Thank you so much for your time this hour. Thank you. And that'll do it for this hour of All Sides on 89.7 NPR News.